We believe that our only limitation of what we could achieve depends on our solidarity amongst each other and our willingness for actual working people, regular folks to step up, be active, and demand a different kind of world. I know those motherfuckers. I've been in their goddamn building. Those people are pieces of shit. I sat across the table from them and they said, hey, can I put a fucking right to work in your contract? Yeah. The daily press doesn't do a very good job of explaining what we are and who we are. We need to do that to ourselves, for ourselves, and particularly to our younger members who have never experienced the problems that their forefathers did to make the labor movement strong. Legislators who tried to raise the minimum wage um, each legislative session, um, but usually the bill does not get out of committee. If the legislature is not going to act, I don't have to do it for them. <laughs> Not many people realize just how much paint involved, but it covers so many different things. It could be rust, it could be aging, to make something look dirty. And that layer that we add to the film set really can change what the viewer sees as a finished product. We are responsible for every aspect of everything that happens within a project. Testing rebar, testing the soil, monitoring the concrete, evaluating concrete, evaluating the materials that go into concrete. Just there's not any one thing that happens on a job site that we don't touch. Rites of passage are never easy. Ask the old helmet and goggle airmail pilots what it was like to go from open cockpits to Ford trimotors and in instrument flight. Then ask their successors, the second generation of professional airline pilots, what it was like to go from the DC-3 to the Super Constellation. Hey, welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a roundup of highlights from some of the more than 130 shows that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. On this week's show, we'll hear from Equal Time Radio, Work Stoppage, Ilka Insider, Labor Lines, Apple Box Talks, Breaking Ground, and Flying the Line. What these shows all have in common is that you've never heard them here on the weekly before, as they're all new members of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Vermont-based Equal Time Radio bills itself as a podcast for people who want to understand the world in order to change it. Work Stoppage is a podcast that only talks about what can be done for the working class. We're here to demolish corporate ladders and chew bubblegum, they say. And we don't even like bubblegum. Ilka Insider is the podcast of the International Labor Communicators Association, which works to amplify labor's voice. Labor Lines comes to us from Moscow, Idaho, and features interviews, music, news, and commentary related to the labor struggle. Applebox Talks is put together by IATSE Local 891, the largest IATSE local in Canada, and features interviews with their member artists and technicians from prep to post and everything in between. Apple boxes, by the way, are wooden boxes or crates of varying sizes with holes on each end used chiefly in film production. I'd look that up. Breaking Ground is the podcast from Operating Engineers Local 3, the largest construction trades local in the United States, representing over 38,000 members across a four-state jurisdiction, California, Northern Nevada, 
Utah and Hawaii, including the Mid-Pacific Islands. Flying the Line recounts the beginnings of the Airline Pilots Association, the world's largest pilot union, through an abridged retelling of George Hopkins' fascinating book, Flying the Line. We're really excited to bring you these new voices at the network. Some are brand new shows, and some have been around for a while, but they're all committed to showcasing the lives of working people. I'm Chris Garlock for the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome to Equal Time Radio. This is the producer of the show, Anthony Apodaca. In today's episode, Travin LaShawn interviews Vermont AFL-CIO President David Van Dusen. They talk about building union power, working class unity, and a union-led Green New Deal. We hope you enjoy the episode. In times like these, we find out that a society is only just as strong our solidarity a planet to lose but what is the vermont afl cio we're a federation of uh, with over eleven thousand members representing just about every sector every type of job you could imagine all throughout vermont we're a federation of different affiliated unions and we come together to amplify our own power frankly uh we're looking to turn the corner and change what's politically possible in Vermont. We embrace, uh, embrace social justice unionism, working uh, towards a popular front with allies outside of organized labor. And we believe that our only limitation of what we could achieve depends on our solidarity amongst each other and our willingness for actual working people, regular folks to step up, be active, and demand a different kind of world. This is a really kind of a different vision than what I think many people associate with unions having often seen unions, uh, well, rightly or probably wrongly as just being parochial, only interested in, you know, only interested in the immediate interests of of their membership. We recognize that ultimately our power is not going to be uh, based in one bargaining unit, in one workplace. It's going to be when we act in a united fashion, shoulder to shoulder, in solidarity, with working class people all across Vermont and beyond. Now, every time I go, I've bargained, I've probably bargained close to a hundred contracts personally. And every time we go to the bargaining table, uh, the boss is always trying to chip away or take away aspects of healthcare benefits. You know, this is something we have to defend time and time again. So rather than defend that at the bargaining table would be at 500 people uh, in a bargaining unit or five people in a bargaining unit, we need to win that in a universal way through single payer or socialized medicine on a statewide level and then on a national level to take that out of the bargaining process. And we're not gonna do that based on our uh, union members alone. We're gonna do that by building a mass movement with regular working people who frankly, many of them don't have affordable uh, healthcare. Many uh, thousands don't have any at all. So that's why we need to work with community partners. That's why we need to work with allies. That's why we have to look beyond our narrow self-interest mm-hmm. and think bigger. We could transform society, but to do that, 
we need the majority with us. And who is the great majority of people on this planet, not just in Vermont, but on the planet, is working class people. And that's where we need to be the leaders among them uh, to help organize them within the unions and outside the unions towards, towards more um, towards, towards social ends that benefit all of us. President of the Vermont AFL-CIO, David Van Dusen, I want to thank you very much for sharing some of your thoughts with us and some of the important developments we see within the organized working class in Vermont. Always happy to be an equal time traveler. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. A planet to lose or a world to be one. In times like these, we find out that a society is only just as strong as our solidarity. Ooh, excuse me. Should I tell should I tell a funny joke and try to try to lead <laughs> us into this episode or should I just you know launch what? Yeah, into you, an intro? Yeah, we need to do the cold open. I'm I'm out of bits. I don't have all I I did the other podcast already where I let all my bits loose. So I'm <laughs> I'm witless and bitless right now. Welcome to Work Stoppage, everybody, a more serious show where we talk about what's going on in well, labor. Well, I mean, you know, we could do what I'm sure every one of our listeners wants us to do and spend 15 minutes pointlessly arguing about AOC's dress that oh, no yeah. other oh, podcast I'm sure will be doing this week. You know, I, the, the way to lead right into this first story <laughs> where we talk about the Starbucks union busting campaign uh like the first thing i saw on there was starbucks has hired littler mendelson and if you are a longtime listener maybe even a shorter time listener you might have heard me say i know those motherfuckers i've been in their goddamn building those people are pieces of shit i sat across the table from them and they said hey can i put uh fucking right to work in your contract yeah that's the kind of fucking people we're dealing with here yeah, yeah and this so- is all on the heels of starbucks workers united uh, in Buffalo, New York, who have been uh, launching a unionization drive. And anybody who's familiar with Starbucks knows that for a long time they avoided coming out and saying how explicitly anti-union they were. But if you ever worked for them or you understand how their business is structured, you can tell that they kind of have like a weird uh, Nordic model attitude where they're like well we provide you as our partners so many resources anyway why would you possibly need a union and then as soon as they have like one store try to unionize they're like littler mendelson look at all these get problems they're also doing one-on-one meetings and they're trotting out the old uh, we don't want uh, a third party to be <laughs> yeah. coming between us and our baristas because we really feel oh, like yeah. we can answer their uh, concerns much more quickly and flexibly if we do it in a one-on-one fashion pretty sure the twitter account that that is for the starbucks workers united came out with a response to this which is we are the fucking union right yeah no, yeah their their twitter has been fucking great i i highly recommend following uh at sb workers united one of the interesting things reading this article they did seem like start based on legal precedent that starbucks would actually be relatively unlikely to win this in an in a legal ruling but because just because of the fact that they're pushing for it will delay 
any of the elections by weeks and weeks and putting you know months and months all of which gives starbucks more time to try and do all this shit to break the union and you so so they had a, a quote in here from one of the uh organizers who's working with starbucks united uh, workers united who said quote it'd be very hard for them to win the unit they're asking for but litigating the issue could delay the election for several weeks during which time they can continue swarming the stores and pulling workers into mandatory meetings. And so like that, I think is a really good illustration of the, the, that's like already showing you like the bad faith. Like if you already didn't understand like how Starbucks has no intention of, of organizing in good faith, the fact that like, they're pushing for this bargaining unit size when there's legal precedence against it, uh-huh. knowing they would likely lose in a ruling, but doing it just for the value of it as a stalling tactic. Like, honestly, like, in my opinion, that alone should be like evidence of bad faith bargaining. But of course, it, it it's not legally ruled that way. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. We really appreciate your help. Um, it goes a long way to helping us get this project done. And so you can actually go and become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. $5 gets you access to all of our, uh, you know, paywall episodes. Uh, again, if you cannot afford that, let me know. I'm happy to provide those things to you. Uh, give us a good review. Uh, give John a good review. Go on his Twitter. Just write five stars and then click post. <laughs> go on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, go 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 on on Dan's Twitter uh, at Work Stoppage Pod, and on also five stars there. Um, follow his other uh, podcast, Red Game Table. John's other podcast, Beep Beep Lettuce. Uh, I got. I know that I have one other joke in here somewhere. It's something. I I guess I'll have to save it for next time. <laughs> I guess in the meantime, labor peace is not in our interest. Solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody. Welcome to the ILCA Insider Podcast. We amplify labor's voice around the world. I'm Lisa Martin, president of the ILCA. Today we have Ed Finkelstein from the St. Louis Southern Illinois Labor Tribune with us. Hi, Ed. How are you today? Fine, Lisa. I hope you're as well. Thanks. So, Ed, you served as a board member with the ILCA and have been a member for how long? 10 years, I believe. 10 or 11 Uh years. It's been an exciting adventure with ILCA. I've enjoyed it. The Labor Tribune's been a member at least 52 years that I can tell. We've got a, some old bound copies back to 1967, and we were a member then. I found it to be a, a very efficient, very effective tool for labor communicators. In fact, it's really the only educational tool for, for labor communicators. And are there any uh, special moments or, or things that stand out to you over your uh, years of involvement with the ILCA? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Last year with Right to Work, where the Labor Tribune, I think, played a major role in helping educate our members and our readers to the nasty benefits of having Right to Work in this state. Sure. And I, my observation is that there was just such a massive education campaign in Missouri 
that it <clears throat> by the labor movement of which the Tribune played a part of that education and it really changed people's minds. I think a lack of awareness about right to work and maybe not right. a huge amount of feeling either way to being changed to being really against it and stopping it with a ballot initiative. Well, really amazing. Yeah, it started off uh, with the Republican-controlled legislature at the beginning of last year in January. Their first start of a business when they came back in in 2019, 2018 was to pass this right-to-work law. And, of course, we weren't going to let that stand. So we got a proposition on the ballot approved to approve or disapprove of that law. And we launched a massive petition campaign to get that issue on the ballot. They weren't going to put it on the ballot, obviously. And so between February and May, uh, June, we gathered 310,000 signatures. We only needed 180,000 in six of eight congressional districts in the state of Missouri. We got over 310,000 signatures in every district, all eight congressional districts. The first time it's been done in the history of an initiative petition campaign. And so that was the start of the energizing of our labor movement and of the public to that there was a real problem with this law. And as a result, the Labor Tribune and the labor movement itself, we formed a special committee, raised a lot of money, several millions of dollars to develop a TV, print and direct mail campaign that focused on the issue of lost wages, what it would cost Missourians in terms of over $8,000. Uh, a year if we went right to work. And so the issue was vote no on this proposition. And we specifically worded the campaign, the, the proposition on the ballot so that we could have a no vote because people tend to vote no more than they vote yes if they don't understand the issue. And mm -hmm. as a result, we, we of 114 counties in Missouri, our issue passed by 99, in 99 of the counties with a 67.5% vote, one of the strongest votes of any petition campaign ever that sent a strong message to the legislature. As a result, the right to work law was nullified. And we're real, real proud and real pleased that it energized our movement. It educated the public. But interestingly enough, when it came time, this was the vote was in, yeah. in November, the public reelected a number of the state, the majority of the state legislators that voted to support this law because they didn't make the connection. And I think we didn't help effectively make the connection between the legislator voting to get this law on the ballot and the fact that they voted against it to in August. So in November, we unfortunately elected most of the legislators that put the law on the ballot in the first place. And so I'm afraid we're going to have to fight that issue again sometime in the future. I think the your secret to success part was partly due just being able to simplify the issue so well. Absolutely. I think it's important for the labor movement to understand the value of, of frequent communications with their members. Too many locals, too many central bodies only publish a newsletter once a month, once every other month. And it's very difficult to provide the kind of ongoing information, particularly timely information that they need. And so the labor movement in St. Louis is fortunate in that we have the Labor Tribune, which is a weekly publication. There are not many of us left, but I would encourage you that are listening, if you've got a publication, to increase its frequency 
so that you can get the information out on a timely basis to your members. I think that's vital. The daily press doesn't do a very good job of explaining what we are and who we are. We need to do that to ourselves, for ourselves, and particularly to our younger members who have never experienced the problems that their forefathers did to make the labor movement strong. We see that happening all the time. So thank you again, Ed, for your time and your insights. And for folks listening, please remember to check the ILCA blog and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. That's all, folks. This is John Andercheck with Labor Lines, the radio show on KRFP 90.3 FM, Moscow, Idaho, and Labor Lines, a podcast that you can find on Anchor FM and other platforms. Today, the 9th of September, I'm joined by Chris Stroh out of Boise, Idaho. Chris is working on an initiative, really pushing it along, getting it out on his social media to raise the dismal minimum wage in the state of Idaho. Hey, thanks, John. Thanks for, for inviting me. So, yes, um, we have an, in- an initiative that will um, go on the 2020 ballot, um, and it was an initiative to increase the minimum wage to $13 per hour and the tip employees' minimum wage at wage to ten dollars an hour and then there's also two um other clauses that would remove right now there's a training wage that's 425 an hour for the first 90 days for people under the age of 18 and then there's a prohibition about that prevents local jurisdictions from setting their own higher minimum wage and we would remove those two provisions from idaho statute what Wow, that, I mean that's excellent when you lay out all those uh, facets. Uh, yeah, this tipping wage is uh, horrid in my my book. I've talked to uh, organizers in New York City, Chris, about the tipping wage, how it came about. Uh, very interesting history behind it. But uh, to me, uh, the tipping wage uh, lays so many of the most vulnerable people even more vulnerable. Uh, you know, for harassment, uh, for uh, degrading behavior on part of the customer, sadly, and uh, kind of demeans their work. So you really, it's a very encompassing uh, initiative. You want to give us some background on that, how it kind of put it together? Sure. Um, so there was a group that tried to put this initiative on the ballot for two, um, for 2020, and um, we got shut down by COVID. And so um, the I call it for a fair wage is the name of the group has reconstituted itself and has developed this new initiative um, that's a little bit different from the one we had before and we've been collecting signatures for about um, six weeks and generally find it's very much of a bipartisan issue um, I a little bit of background the, the minimum wage in Idaho is 725 and has been 725 since 2009 that was the last time there was was any change. And believe it or not, Idaho has a slightly higher tip, tip wage. It's um, 335 where the federal minimum is like, it's two-something. But still, you know, um, I mean, even working full-time at 725 an hour, um, the, an individual would make like $15,000 a year. And, and it's, um, you know, you can't live on that. You have to probably have, you know, two full-time jobs, you know, at minimum wage or something close to that to make, um, to be able to support yourself. And um, there have been legislators who've tried to raise the minimum wage um, each legislative session, um, 
but usually the bill does not get out of committee. And so uh, I had worked on the Medicaid expansion initiative, and uh, you know, if the legislature is not going to act, um, I always will have to do it for them. <laughs> Excellent, Chris. That's excellent, and uh, and congratulations for working on the Medicare ex- Medicaid expansion. Excuse me, I was living in Idaho when that passed. I was living in Idaho County, and in a very uh, red county, uh, if just to use the local terminology, I mean accepted terminology. Excuse me, uh, very red county. Uh, it that initially did passed overwhelmingly, and then of course the legislature tried to. Uh, uh, train wreck the initiative process that was a big fight uh by the groups and uh the court i think overturned that because they were trying to make it almost impossible to get initiative on the ballot so that battle had been fought i mean you're constantly in the trenches chris i i, I truly admire what you're doing there oh well thank you so much and and thank you for being so complimentary i um it is really it's it's fun to get out and talk to people and hear what they care about so we have a website fairwageid.org and we'd encourage um, anyone to go to to that website Um, you can uh, fill out an interest Um, there's a place to enter your contact information and we'll be in touch we have a group in Moscow that has been gathering signatures for a couple of months and I know they'd love some help Um, so if if people will give us their contact information we'd be happy to put um, you in touch with the local leaders and there's also, you can also print a petition from our website and, you know, collect signatures on your own. Excellent, Chris. Once again, uh, uh, I'm just just honored to have you on this radio show. We'll get it out. Again, this is John Anderchick with Labor Lines, uh, KRFP, Moscow, Idaho, Labor Lines, the podcast. So uh, I'm going to... Uh, let you go here. Stay on. Stay on the phone here. But again, I'm. I'm gonna. Thanks again for taking your time to be on this interview. Hey, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. IATSE Local Eight Nine One presents Apple Box Talks, the podcast where we get to talk to the very best in entertainment, the artists and technicians of Eight Nine One. From prep to post and everything in between, we create worlds on screens of all sizes. Welcome to Apple Box Talks. I'm Crystal. And I'm Hillary. Today we're joined by a member who is a gifted artist with credits to their name such as C, Wayward Pines, and the BFG. We welcome paint department member Taze Powell. So pull up an Apple Box and let's talk. Welcome, Taze. Hi. Thanks for coming in today on a Saturday. Thanks for having me. So a lot about film production and kind of that peeking behind the curtain, there's a lot of illusion and I think so often people don't realize how much is actually painted on a set. Can you talk a little bit about that learning curve for you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When you approach a movie set, I guess the paint, we would call that like the final layer that the viewer gets to see. And it's interesting because like you said, not many people realize it's just how much paint's involved, but it covers so many different things. It could be rust, it could be aging, to make something look dirty and that layer that we add to the film set really can change 
what the viewer sees is a finished product. It can really, it, a, a bit of aging can really alter the mood of a whole entire scene. There's so many different unique processes that we use and different products. And yeah, it's, it's definitely a learning curve when you get into the business because most people just see a TV show or a movie and they're watching the actors and they don't realize how much the set actually contributes to their viewing experience. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> It does. I worked on a piece of a countertop for a show. I can't even remember what show it was. But anyways, I did this countertop. And that was it was interesting watching how the carpenters, because a lot of them don't necessarily see the next steps after it goes out of the carp shop. So for them, their eyes were open to, oh, wow, because it just was a slab of wood when they were dealing with it. And it was a countertop when I was done with it. <laughs> changes coming for the paint department as we see increasingly more digital settings we don't really use giant matte paintings anymore the same way people used to right so how do you see it shaping absolutely i I think what happens is now people have to be a little bit more dynamic people have to be more have a bit of more diverse skill set because as you said for example if you were just a sign painter that just did backdrops that's as you said going to become a thing of the past there's a lot of elements that are changing and they're changing fast and so now a lot more of what we do is on location and the location so that makes my job more interesting because it's a it becomes dynamics of how to present one location to look like another location as opposed to doing a huge set in in the studio and it's it is it's a changing world where we're all it's a little bit of an anxious process i think for some people who are used to just doing one thing but it's a fun challenge We were talking about how certain departments have tricks of the trade that have become known. Is there a particular trick that you always come back to, which might be surprising to listeners, like how you achieve a particular effect or something that they've seen on screen but might not realize how it got there? Yeah, that's a great question. We use a lot of wax, beeswax, and a lot of wallpaper paste. For example, if we had to frost some windows really quick and I didn't have frosting, I would use wallpaper paste and just roll wallpaper paste right on the window and then wash it (laughs) off afterwards. So that's a fun little (laughs) trick for anybody who wants to frost their windows at home. The wax is cool because you can really, there's a type of, it's an art form of painting with waxes, but we, the way we do it, we'll tint the wax and use it for different kinds of aging or different rust methods or moss so there's a lot of little things that I could do real quick that all of a sudden make this table look mossy and old just with a little bit of wax and and, uh, some tint so that's pretty cool awesome thank you yeah talk to us about the most fulfilling rewarding project you've worked on so last year I worked on Omens and that was that was cool because I had a good touch on all the sets and I got really nice feedback from the designers and from the DOP and that's always goes a long way. You did mention Wayward Pines season two. Yeah, Wayward Pines was uh, was awesome. Wayward Pines was awesome. I got to work, I got to spend a little bit of time around an actor that I, I absolutely love. I'm not going to say any names. Just I, it, Also, I was working as an onset painter on Wayward Pines. The role of the onset painter is you're with the shooting crew, you're right on the monitors, you're with the directors, you're with the actors, you're and anything to do with paint <laughs> that they could think to use you for, they'll call you and they need it done 10 minutes ago. So it's high pressure job. And it's a lot of times you might go a whole day and only get one call on the radio, but that call will be the call. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it, it is a big challenge, but that show was really cool. We got to do some really cool locations and just the 
there was a certain energy on set. It's sometimes it's hard to describe. You, you get around a certain group of people and it almost becomes a family all of a sudden. And we've all been on shows, I'm sure, where you where suddenly you're, you're best friends with somebody you've only known for a month or two months. What are some sources of inspiration for you? Because as an artist, it's not just at work that you're seeking inspiration and, and being creative. How do you keep that stoked? That's a great question. Yeah, I, 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 my family's a huge sort of source of inspiration. Music, I love music. My background, my African American roots, are a huge source of inspiration for me. That's always something that that has been a bit, especially with music, jazz music. It's always something that I've painted paintings about and so it's been a big motivation for me and also just as I talked about before I guess that that big picture of a career and of a journey as an artist just to keep building and and I would like to be able to look back or have my children be able to look back at a great legacy one day. So thank you for coming in today Taze and giving us a peek at your inspiration and your vision and uh, best of luck with your your fine art and your acting. Thank you yeah thank you very much it's been awesome it's been great fun and Yeah, hopefully many people get to hear this. And that's a wrap for another episode of Apple Box Talks. For more episodes and to find your fit in the film and TV industry, check out ourwork.ca. Well, thanks for tuning in to Local 3's 11th podcast, Breaking Ground, where we discuss all things labor, history, and politics as it relates to Operating Engineers Local 3. I'm happy to have with us today District 80 Rep. John Rector and Technical Engineers Special Rep. Michael Strunk, who's also the Director of Safety. Now, these two guys are the experts of the testing and inspection surveyor world. And so we're going to talk to them today a little bit about how those two groups make up what's called our technical engineers program, which is often not really known as in how it sits within local three. Can you talk a little bit about, I know there's a lot that goes on into the testing and inspection world, but I think most of our audience has no idea. Yeah, we are absolutely the first people on site, aside from the general contractor who may or may not have a job trailer. And so we follow that project all the way from the ground to completion, both surveyors and building inspectors are the only crafts required by law to be on a job site, which is pretty cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. That makes sense then why this is within the Local 3 blanket, because mm-hmm. you work hand in hand with operating engineers. Yeah, our surveyors work directly with the foreman, the superintendent, and, and commonly our grade setters, right? The grade setters take the staking that the surveyors provide on the job site, and they translate that into a working piece of the project that the operators can look at and understand how deep they need to cut, how much they need to fill, just everything off of that one stake that starts with that surveyor putting that location in the ground. These these jobs, this technical engineer's universe is really where STEM meets the construction industry. We are responsible for every aspect of everything that happens within a project testing rebar, testing the soil, monitoring the concrete, evaluating concrete, evaluating the materials that go into concrete. Just there's not any one thing that happens on a job site that we don't touch. Right now, it's a good opportunity to get people in to to get them to understand our career and, and start a career path of their own. And what's cool is the apprenticeship programs are fairly small. So you have more of that personal instruction time. You're not just one of 50 in a POP class shuffled through, not that there's anything wrong with that, but there's more engagement between the instructor or smaller class sizes. It is a career path that is 
appetizing to veterans. And there's a lot more women who are, I think, being drawn to this career. I'm glad you mentioned women, Mandy. I'm really particularly proud of one thing is, and many things really, but our female population in the construction inspection apprentice is it's 15%. It's about wow. double it's about double what the traditional apprentice picture might look like. And the reason for that is that it's while it is a physical job, it's attainable. And we really look forward to people understanding that this is a place that you don't see a gender gap. You don't see a pay gap. You won't make less than a male counterpart. And it's just one of the great things about organized labor and the union universe in particular. I think it's worth mentioning, too, that... If you have a career in the technical engineers field, you can also choose to get on Local 3 staff, which is a choice that you both made. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to do that? I think we both have a similar story that, that you know, at, at some point in time, we had a bad experience with a rep from the union, right? Oh. Back in the day, I remember going to an individual and asking for help and not getting a response. And this is many years ago when the opportunity came up, I wanted to be able to provide that service that I didn't get. I wanted to make it better. I still want to make it better. It's why I'm still here. I, I look at it every day and I go, we have done some phenomenal things in this world and we're going to continue to do phenomenal things for our members, given the opportunity to continue to do that. But the reality is, is there's still a lot of work to do. There's always going to be more work that we got to do to take care of our members, to advance these industries and to protect the industries themselves and the members so that they have a few a future when it comes to retirement and everything else that it's always going to be there and always going to be stable for. Well, I appreciate you coming in here and shedding light on technical engineers. Again, not always well-known, but a huge part of operating engineers as a whole. And without technical engineers, there is no construction project to be had. And I know both of you are real diehard representatives of our members and our apprentices and are fully committed to making this union great. So I, I thank you for taking a little bit of time out of your busy day to come and talk about this. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank, thank you both. Thank you. Previously on Flying the Line. The pilots of American Airlines leave ALPA to form their own labor union, but not without a heavy burden. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 23, Jets and Thin Ice, Part 1. Rites of passage are never easy. Ask the old helmet-and-goggle airmail pilots what it was like to go from open cockpits to Ford trimotors and instrument flight. Then ask their successors, the second generation of professional airline pilots, what it was like to go from the DC-3 to the Super Constellation. By the late 1950s, airline pilots were about to undergo another baptism by fire under new technology. The jets were coming. The popular media depicted jet pilots as hard-living, bushy-haired, physically flawless specimens of young manhood rather like airline pilots had been depicted in the 1930s. 
magazines, movies, and television saturated the 1950s with sensational accounts of the physical ordeal that high-altitude jet flight put these young military pilots through, endlessly making the point that flying these hot new planes was a young man's game. It was because of this image that veteran, middle-aged airline pilots felt apprehensive about their futures. The new stress on comprehensive ground training came from the campaign of Federal Aviation Administration head Pete Casada, the ex-Air Force general who seemed to bear a grudge against airline pilots, or so many ALPA members thought. Operating under the rubric that low pilot proficiency caused most of the safety problems accompanying the introduction of jets, Casada insisted that FAA inspectors join regular crew members at random in the cockpit to conduct the aeronautical equivalent of pop quizzes. Casada's approach to improving pilot proficiency caused the only unauthorized strike in Alpa's history. It began with Casada's insistence that his inspectors be allowed to ride in the third pilot's seat during regular flights. When this controversy developed in June 1960, most airlines operating jet equipment carried a crew of four, three pilots and a flight engineer. The third pilot occupied a seat immediately behind and to the right of the captain. Casada insisted that the inspector occupy the jump seat opposite the flight engineer's station. It was a clear case of conflict over command authority, since the pilots insisted that the third pilot had duties to perform, whereas Casada argued that his inspector's function took precedence over the crew function, and that in any case, the FAA personnel were fully qualified to perform the third pilot's duties. It was over this conflict that the pilots of Eastern, Pan American, TWA, and American began guerrilla actions against the FAA. During June 1960, several pilots at these airlines refused to fly. When the FAA official entered the cockpit and insisted upon taking the third pilot's seat, they simply canceled the flight. Casada again threatened dire consequences for pilots refusing to fly with his inspectors. With the problem of Electra structural failures still bubbling and the safety record deteriorating despite his crackdown on pilots, Casada found the pilots' guerrilla rebellion against his inspectors a convenient diversion. In a spate of news releases and interviews, notably with U.S. News and World Report, Casada flatly declared that pilot error was still the largest single cause of fatal accidents, and he threatened to revoke the license of the next pilot who refused to fly with an inspector in the third seat. Casada's hard nosed attitude provoked the wildcat strike at Eastern. Next time on Flying the Line, the pilots at Eastern Airlines strike, and Alpa walks a fine line between the pilots and management. Thank you for listening. This has been part one 
of Chapter 23 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2021. All rights reserved. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 130 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Mel Smith and me. Our social media guru, as always, is Harold Phillips. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website at LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>